Welcome to the Cup and Saucy Book Club. I'm Jen. And I'm Zana. What's in your cup today, Zana? Today I'm drinking a fruit infusion with a new-to-me brand, David's Tea. It's called Forever Nuts, which seems somehow appropriate for me. Um, and it has apple and <laughs> almond and cinnamon. How about you? Well, I just got back last night from vacation in Alaska. So, so jealous. <laughs> so the only caffeine I had in the house uh, until we do the grocery shopping later today was a cold brew coffee uh, from Chameleon Coffee Company. It's not my favorite, but it's doing the job. It, so that's all I need. <laughs> okay. Okay. Zana, please remind our listeners what I assigned you to read this month. You gave me Love in the Wild by Emma Castle. And what did you think? So when I started reading it at first, I was not super loving it, but then I, so this book to, to go backwards a little bit, this book is a, um, it's love in the wild, a Tarzan retelling. So it's yes. a retelling of the Tarzan mythos from Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I realized that I had never read Tarzan, the original novel. And so I thought, I really should understand the original before I read this retelling of it. So right. after about two chapters in the Love in the Wild, I read Tarzan, just eyeball read it. Oh boy, is that a racist book? Yeah, um, it is. It is so crazy thick with white supremacy and uh, misogyny. And there's not really that much humanity in it. To be honest, yeah, the males of the human species are strong and or at least the white ones, the white ones are strong and noble. And then all the all the dark ones are are somehow less than. And it was yeah. infuriating. I nearly threw I mean, luckily, I got it for free on Kindle, but I just about broke my Kindle a number of times. I just had to stop and rant about just oh, yeah. how awful it was and not really very well written either. I mean, it's, but then I started looking at, it was essentially published as pulp fiction novels. Right. Right. And it never aspired to any kind of literary greatness. Uh, and I don't know that, that it has that, that reputation. It certainly isn't anything no, great. I, and when it was turned into movies, I mean, those yeah. were, those were the movie equivalent of Pulp Fiction, too. So exactly right, and and there have been many, many, many retellings of this over what 111 years since it was originally yes. published. Yes, and then I went back to Love in the Wild, and I started to appreciate it for what it had done well, that yes. how it had been true to the adventure romance elements of Tarzan because Tarzan mm -hmm. really is a romance in some ways. The first book is not, it doesn't end with the couple happily together, but I, from, I, I couldn't bear to read the rest of it, but from what I've gleaned from my, my interwebs search, uh, the next few novels are definitely in the more in the adventure romance. Love in the Wild, it does it much better, I think, and much more concisely and tighter and the the flow of the story makes a lot more sense than Tarzan does so that it I would say it's not a retelling it's a improvement <laughs> a vast improvement a redo on, a redo a 
a fix it fic, if you will, yeah. for for the awfulness that is Tarzan. And and that there were a couple of stumbling points within the book that I was like, that doesn't ring true. But then I dug it up a little bit and found out that I my assumptions had been wrong on some things. Oh. So the first point that caught me really was Thorn, who is the the Tarzan analog. He and his parents, who are the uh, his parents are the are, I guess the Earl and Countess. They are British nobility. They're 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 British nobility. Yeah, of Somerset and the Earl of Somerset. So they are going. They are conservationists, and they are heading into Uganda, which is uh, Tarzan is set on the west coast of Africa, and Uganda is sort of east central Africa. Yes. His family ends up crashing in the impenetrable forest in Uganda, which is a real place. The pilot dies, but the family, the husband and wife, and and their little son Thorn, survive. Who's a toddler at this point? He's three years old. Yeah, Um, and so and so he is old enough to kind of know his parents a little bit, but you know, and he has a little bit of language, but not a huge amount. Um, One of the major things that they have is he's got his jungle alphabet book, and so he's learning things like G is for gorilla, and M is for monkey, and that kind of thing. When they crash. They happen to crash near where there is a treasure hunter of very um, dubious. Yeah, um, he's a treasure intent. hunter and a poacher. Yeah, so, so he's a bad guy, and yeah. and so Thorne's father stumbles upon them, and he's sort of called to this this massive uncut diamond, and to and the the diamond seems to tell him to take him from these people so he does but then the poacher treasure hunters follow them and they they kill the parents but this this bad guy's like well i have a code of honor and i'm not going to kill a child but i'll just leave it here to die sometime not too long later thorn's cries are heard by a mother gorilla and who has a young nursing baby and so she finds the baby and decides well this is my son too now and now i have two sons she raises him to be one of the the tribe the gorilla of course he this was another thing that okay so this was one thing one of the first things that's kind of stopped me up because i know it's a fantasy I understand right. it's a fantasy. It's being sort of touted as being realistic, though, at this point. Babies, even a three-year-old, are going to be hard-pressed to live for too long with a gorilla. The gorilla would probably be nurturing, would probably try to take care of it, but baby gorillas are way more hardy than baby humans. So it's not 100% implausible. It's just like, but this ends up getting answered at the end. Yeah. And so I, I, I was... I'm okay with that one. And also it's a fantasy, right? It is so, a fantasy because there's also a little bit of a magic element. Oh yeah, there it. is. And that's, and that's the point. There's a magic element that sort of makes this, this baby hardy enough to be yes. able to, to live among the gorillas that shows up near the end of the book. 
So I don't want to spoil that too much. But the point that I was like, oh, somebody did a lot of research, but didn't look into this was as he's growing up, he becomes friends with Timbo, a bull elephant who is leader of a herd. And my first reaction of this is elephant herds are matriarchal. Yeah. They're not, they're not led by bull elephants. (laughs) However, in my own, in, in my own reading, after I read this book, I started looking into it because I was like, I don't want to call this out. If it's, I was wrong. Apparently this is a new information that has been discovered by animal behaviorists that male elephants will form their own mentorship groups. And so young elephant, young male elephants will often band together with older male elephants and learn how to be proper elephants. And so so it's totally plausible that brother, uh, like a big brother, big sister. Yeah. So that's totally possible that there would be a small herd of male elephants led by a male, which I was like, elephants aren't led by males. I'm like, but it turns out recent, recent animal behavior has discovered that this is true. So I have to, and this book came out 2020, but it is recent enough that, that this information would have been available to Right. And this is another thing that I looked into because I'm a giant nerd. When I first started describing it to my husband, he was like, you're telling me that white people went missing and nobody found them in that amount of time. And I'm like, and I looked it up and was like, okay, is it plausible today? It's not super plausible today that a group of a small group of very rich white people would go missing for that long. Right. However, this is 20 some years before this is the late nineties. And in the late nineties, Uganda was still having civil wars. And so there were still a lot of political unrest that would have, and, and the people in power were friendlier to sort of Western nations, but certain areas of the country were not 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 to the yeah and not to the extent that they would that they would okay a you know a A massive search and rescue yeah a massive search and rescue you know the gps technology Mm -hmm. in the 90s is not as yeah that's the other thing is that that now gps tracking is available for everyone that is yes can pinpoint to a very small location that did not occur for everyone until 2001. And so since this would have been set, uh, at least the plane crash would have been set in the late nineties, it's plausible that the GPS was not as reliable. I mean, only military had that pinpoint precision GPS at that stage. And the, the family that's in Britain. So the Thorns uncle, Cameron, uncle and aunt, even though that they had resources in terms of money, Uh uh-huh. They would have been, you know, told that that they couldn't be found, and and even though he hadn't really given up the search in his mind, you know, enough time would have passed that it would. Yeah, have been, he was pretty certain that that his yeah family that, was, that was that dead. the family was dead. Yeah. So, flash forward to today, or you know, twenty twenty, whatever. Uh, there was no pandemic 
conversation. So it must have been 2020, <laughs> um, like pre, pre-pandemic 2020. The Jane equivalent is Eden. And she has gone on a sort of photo safari to you've got Uganda to see gorillas. Yeah, she's a photojournalist. She's a photojournalist for a a parks magazine. Mm-hmm. And so she has gone to this national park, which you know is somewhat in this impenetrable forest area with a bunch of other tourists. The tourists are taken to see the gorillas and they see, you know, they see these gorillas and amazing and wonderful, but then poachers show up. They're not just the poachers. It's also the bad guys seeking the same treasure from 20 something years ago. Everyone in the party gets slaughtered except for Eden and the guides who are with these poachers are the more, the local group of the poachers become terrified because they hear this sound and they they know the legends of this the beast right and so they all run away except for the guy who's leading the group and he's about to do something terrible to eden when he's suddenly attacked and killed and eden is left alone and this happens in the very first part of the book the time jumps oh, yeah. around the time jumps around a bit which it follows somewhat with the Tarzan time jumps, but the Tarzan time jumps, I, I think that Emma Castle does it better than Edgar Rice Burroughs did because she does it in a way that builds tension. And so she'll right. bring it to like a, a, a cliffhanger moment, which, you know, that's what Burroughs was known for was sort of these cliffhanger moments, but it builds up more tension to do it the way that she did it to, you know, start with the attack and then kind of backtrack a little bit to who is right. this mysterious and, and give beast. it and it gives it context and yeah. and also as thorn is remember he's 3 right when when his parents are killed so there's a lot of you know there's probably a lot of trauma and so mm-hmm. that there's repressed memories mm-hmm. and as the memories come up for him that's when that's also when you know, that kind of goes back, back in time to, you know, the bits that he remembers and, right, and, right. and it all like, it kind of, it, 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 it makes, it makes sense it within co- the context. Yeah. It makes it cohesive. It makes, exactly. Um, in a way that the original source material is not. You're right. So I think it's, it's so much better done that it was, you know, it was, I was actually really, as much as I really didn't like for, for modern reasons and for humane reasons, didn't like Tarzan. I was glad that I went back and read that in context of reading this because it made this shine a lot brighter. I understood better of what she was doing as a writer taking on this material that I would not have understood how she was making conscious choices for a 2023 or 2020 audience. I mean, I think that the themes are, you know, sort of the opposite in, in a lot of ways of the themes of, of Tarzan. And so the, the idea is of, of overcoming the animal nature to become more of a distinguished white man in Tarzan 
Whereas in Love in the Wild, the idea is that humans are the most dangerous animals that there yes. are. Yes. And we are animals and we, you know, we are not necessarily, well, and so this is, hmm, my son almost wanted to come on the podcast today <laughs> to start. He has a, a long running rant about intelligence in animals and how we don't really understand animal intelligence. And so we cannot say with any certainty that any animal is more intelligent or less intelligent. They just are. So the way that he describes it is sort of like a Venn diagram. Um, so we know everything. We still don't know everything about ourselves and our own intelligence, but the things that we recognize in other animals fall within the Venn diagram of how it is human-like. Yes. And there are large, just vast realms of intelligence that has nothing to do with human intelligence that we can't even begin to understand. Which, you know, I have to, I have to agree with him that, and, and go a little beyond here to say that for humans to determine what intelligence is based on, you know, comparing it to ourselves is it's incredibly form, arrogant. It, it, it's the purest form of racism there is. Really. It is, it is, it really is. Um, and it, it is incredibly narrow-minded and mm -hmm. it is incredibly racist because it's not just talking about it's it's talking about the human race being superior yes and and race and and by racism here we're meaning the biological definition yeah. you know right that but it but it tracks for anything yeah, different oh, it totally and does. so so when you when you look at at the other beings or not, I mean, not just animals, but other, you know, plants, animals, other sorts of life on this planet and beyond, but we don't really know about life beyond. So, you know, potentially right. beyond. We can only speak, we can only speak to life on this planet. We can only speak to the life no. that we're aware of. And yeah. so, but even the life we're aware of, we're just beginning to understand how complex and you know there's societies that we do not really understand that we're starting to understand that they exist like mm -hmm. tree societies you know right. and forests and the the idea that forests and trees will will i have a sticker on the front of my laptop that says is it comes from a conversation I, that i created that it comes with the conversation i had with my son that says trees are socialists um because <laughs> um in Which this i love because I love so trees will work for the greater good of the forest so if a tree is dying they will they will dump their nutrients not just to the next of their kin but the next strongest tree that is in the forest so that they may thrive. It doesn't even have to be the same species of tree. And, and this if, is, and if, this is where the interconnectedness of rainforest ecosystems yeah. really comes right, into play. Exactly. Yes. And, and that's why you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't make it better when you cut down a rainforest to make a tree farm of all the same tree, because all yes. the same tree becomes too much 
of one type of thing. Yeah, it's it's the whole the the whole idea of when you hear that they're planting a tree, yeah. you know, to like carbon offset or whatever, find out more about what kind of right. trees they're planting because they have to have there has to be a biodiversity yes. in order for it to really be a carbon offset. Right. Um, you know, it's not, you know, if you're just planting a whole row of Christmas trees, that is mm -hmm. not the same thing as putting together a diverse population of plant life. Right. That will create its own ecosystem and. Right. And, and support all sorts of different other types of plants right. and animals and. And, and yeah. most effectively create the oxygen Yes. that you are trying to, you know, off that, that you are trying to create to offset the carbon that you use. Right. You know, the amount of, the amount of consumer research that has to happen <laughs> by our research by consumers on this kind of stuff is, is, yeah. you know, a whole other, that's a whole other rant, but yeah. Right. It is. But, you know, I mean, I think the, this book, this love in the wild book really does drive home the conservation elements um, oh, definitely. Not just the conservation of animals, but the conservation of the of these rainforests. And yes, it's vitally important to protect these spaces, not just because, you know, they're pretty, but because they are what give us they're the lungs of the planet. They are the things mm -hmm. that give us life. And, you know, if we cut those off, then we start to die. And that is not good for anyone. I mean, you know, having having just come back from Alaska, so much of Alaska is just wild. Like the entire population of of Alaska, I believe, is the same amount as just the San Francisco Bay Area. So and that's spread out over a ginormous state. Right. Um, that is largest than, land area, a, a lot, the largest States. land area in the United States. It's bigger than Texas. It's bigger than California. For all of that wild land, so much of it is being damaged by, you know, the cities, the human population in other areas. Coming back from Alaska, I mean, the the water was bluer, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the you know, the air was cleaner, but there was also, we should have been seeing more glaciers than we saw. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the melt, the melt is real. Yeah, um, earlier this summer we went to uh, the Canadian Rockies, which I've talked about already. We went to a couple places where the glaciers you could, you know, kind of get to them from the the side of the road. One of the spots we were probably at least two miles from the glacier head, and there was a sign said that you know, fifteen years ago the glacier was here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, was, you know, there was still... that was sad. <laughs> Uh, we we were there during the summer solstice, so usually higher temperatures. And while yes, the sun was out not quite twenty four hours where we were, but but pretty close. Um, mm -hmm. The sun would rise at like three thirty in the morning, and mm -hmm. sun it would set at a, around eleven thirty at night. You know that said, there should still be snow up there. There should mm -hmm. still be ice up there. There was some, but mm -hmm. not nearly as much as there should have been. And right. so, yeah, the the idea of the conservation within Love in the Wild is very prevalent because it's that is a that is a right now conversation. 
Mm-hmm. And Emma Castle was also inspired by Diane Fossey's work. Yes. Um, who is Diane Fossey, for those who don't know, this is the this is the conservationist and naturalist who studied gorillas in Rwanda and Eastern uh, Republic of Congo and the movie with Sigourney Weaver, uh, Gorillas Gorillas in the Mist, Mist, was about her life. And so this, um, there was a lot of inspiration and, and research from, from what I gather, uh, for Love in the Wild from uh, right yeah and i could i could see that too unfortunately diane fossey was murdered by poachers Uh, what diane fossey studied in terms of the behavior of gorillas and and their and their societies i mean she got closer than than anybody had before her so you know that research definitely led to to emma's descriptions of um how thorn interacts with with the but, you know, with the other girl, with the gorillas, because it's not just, you know, oh, yes, the the mother accepted him. And so did everyone in the, you know, in the in Yeah, that that, no. that actually wasn't true. Yeah, there were plenty of the especially her mate and yes, the sort of the the lead gorilla, the, the main serverback. Yeah, of the group did not he accept had to, him. He had and and that and that fight was constant. It was not just. Mm-hmm. It was not just a, you know, oh, we're not accepting this child. And then, mm-hmm. you know, as the years go on, yeah, okay, he's there. No, this was a constant thing because, and and it's a realistic depiction of it, I think, because he's still a human. He's mm-hmm. still a human. They're going to not accept the human. And yes, there have been plenty of interspecies adoptions, if you will. Mm-hmm. By, sure. uh, you know, we see it happen all the time and not just in zoos, but, you know, in, in nature, it, it happens. And so, you know, protective mothers will, will take on the abandoned baby, even if it's not their own species and it's not their own child. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that part of it was realistic, but you're right. The, the whole, the whole idea of a human baby being able to survive the same things the gorilla baby could is uh-huh. right yeah, you know it's but but in terms of the story we had to that's a suspension of disbelief there that had to happen in order for the rest of the story to take place right right going to you know the relationship between them in terms of the romance mm-hmm. thorn does know a little bit of english from his book but he also learns well, and he also learns from somebody who started out as a foe for him. It was uh, he'd gone out because his family was sort of desperate for money to hunt bushmeat, and yes. he gets uh, knocked out during this hunt, and and Thorn takes care of him um, and nurses him back to health, and he it changes his mind about about he should never be doing this, you know, and that he sort of becomes a conservationist in his own right. But he, he visits with, with Thorne fairly regularly, I think over the years. Um, I think it's about five years that they know each other before the start of the book. He teaches him some, some sort of rudimentary English Uh, in the book, Tarzan, Tarzan 
teaches himself to read English and write English, um, but doesn't actually have any conversations with anybody. So he can't speak. He can only yes. leave notes. And then he rescues a, a French sailor who has gone, who's arrived to save all the white people and, and gets kidnapped in the, in the process. And so he saves him and the guy teaches him French instead of English. And it's like, okay. Yeah. It's it's a little convoluted. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, starting, starting with Tarzan teaching himself to read and write English. Right. Yes. Which he does over, over many years, but still. um, Yeah. Cause that's totally plausible. But <laughs> I mean, there's there's no there's no context for anything, and that's why right. it doesn't particularly work, you know. So, I mean, there's a little bit of context in the children's picture books that have words and yes, like yes. pictures, and and so you can sort of say maybe you could teach yourself some rudimentary. G is for gorilla, you know, right? You, and there is that memory too of it. Well, but in Tarzan. He, he's a year old when his parents are killed so he's even younger yeah thorn thorn being three is much more plausible than tarzan being oh absolutely absolutely and yeah there's all sorts of so this uh, this book is done in a third person narrative it is um and the narration is done uh it's dual narration uh, mm-hmm. with Shane East and Lucy Rivers, who I know is a new to she's, you narrator. She's new to me, yeah. And the narration but, was fantastic. I, I do have is, to say, yeah. I, I listened to the audiobook for for Love in the Wild. And, you know, I enjoyed Shane East's voice before. He's got more range than I could have imagined. You know, he's he does great voices for for the men but he also does has a pretty decent female voice and you know it's not sort of the falsetto thing it's much more of a it it's just a cadence and um, yeah and and his american isn't bad his american's not bad he's he's a london-born brit so he doesn't come by that american accent naturally yeah it's not it's not bad at all and and his child voice is pretty good too so yeah um and the and he has to do much more of the the heavy lifting when it comes to Thorne's speech. Yes. Uh, because Lucy does have to do it a little bit. Right. But, and she um, and she, yeah. And and the and the vocal match on it is is really good, which is which it's is a difficult thing to pull off for dual narration. Yeah. We've talked about this before, the vocal match. Um and uh, because you were mentioning how uh, Samantha Brentmore was had a good vocal match for for Shane, but yeah, Lucy Rivers was a fantastic vocal yeah. match. I mean, she had the Shane voice down very well. Yeah, um, for when she was doing that narration, and and it's difficult for some for some narrators to pull off for some reason. You know, his, right? His particular his particular accent when he is being very British. Um, yes. you know, in, in this case, in this case with Thorne, because his, because his English is, is much more rudimentary then mm-hmm. you know, you have, you have a little more leeway, uh, Shane handles that there is the, the possibility 
with something like this where you're doing it over, you know, mm-hmm. an eight to 10, I think this is actually a 12 hour uh, audiobook, that there is the possibility of being inconsistent about the speech mm-hmm. patterns over the course of, you know, however many days it takes to record. But Shane keeps that up, you know, he mm-hmm. he really, because Thorne's speech pattern is very distinct and particular because of you know, it's the East English African English, history, and... yeah, and it's East African, and it's uncomfortable. Somewhat... You know, it's not it's not natural to his mouth. It almost right because he's he hasn't grown up with a society that uses the same right. sort of vocalizations, and and he uses you know, and he knows other African languages, and and then the the language of the animals, which is it it's a different way to use the the voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, all of that is taken in together and built to create Thorne's voice. And I think Shane does an excellent job here of keeping that consistent and building a realistic voice for Thorne that is, is made up of all of those things. Lucy Rivers, she usually does a lot of, uh, dark romance, uh, which is, which is why she's new to you because we really haven't gone right to that space. But she really handles all of the elements of this very, very well. And she I does. really enjoyed her performance. I think Shane had the the more difficult job here, even though even though all, all of this is third person and, mm-hmm. you know, technically speaking, it's an equal, equal distribution. I think that uh, Shane had to come up with it first and then and then right. have it be captured by Lucy and then go from there. So. I, I think they both did a tremendous job and with and with something like this where speech is as much a part of the story as you know the overall narrative and the progression of the story speech is a major part of this because of you know his interactions with everyone so I think that the audiobook is is definitely worth the listen just on that point if not if not because I normally go to audiobooks. <laughs> right, right. Using our five cup rating system, uh, what do you give Love in the Wild by Emma Castle? When I first started the book, I was probably, I mean, I didn't, I don't like to pre-rate things, but I, I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to like this very much. Um, I think that having, I think reading Tarzan in between the first uh, first part of the book and and the rest of it puts me up to a four. I really I I really liked it a good bit. Of course, I would put Tarzan at probably a two, maybe wow, a one and a I half. I think that's generous. <laughs> yeah, um, I I same. so I don't love the source material, and yeah. but I think that. And I think if I liked the source material, I could probably give it higher, but because the source material is so problematic, even though she does a very good job, it's it's still got a little bit of the element of a white savior. Yes. And, and so I think I have to, to go with, with four. Yeah. And, and it does, uh, I think though, if, if it didn't still have that, uh, if it didn't still have a little bit of white savior within it, I don't think that it would have been. Um, well, it wouldn't have been Tarzan. It, it would have been Tarzan for it one would, thing. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a whole other story. And right. so you know, 
I think working within the constraints of of the source material and trying to stay somewhat true to to that original source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I am at four and a half cups myself for this okay. audiobook uh narration though, five. It just because of all the things that that we talked about with what what had to be done to bring that to bring that performance to life yeah so, I, I i could agree with that yeah for both for both shane east and lucy rivers this is mm -hmm. a this is a five and this is a book that stuck with me long after i finished reading it um because i consume books so quickly it takes something for it to be for it to be a book that to stick with me so this one did for for a long while and mostly because of the you know what we talked about earlier with the the nature of how we view animals how we view other non-human life on this planet mm -hmm. uh, and through that through that lens of humanity that is is very cloudy mm -hmm. it is not clear at all you know thinking about that stuck with me for a long while and so yeah that's uh, that makes sense yeah so we will have Zana's next assignment in just a minute. Coming up this month, we will be interviewing suspense author Rob Sanborn and uh, a new narrator, Shiloh James, who we met in Denver. And She's the lovely. End of, she is fabulous. And at the end of the month, I'm very excited because this is one of my 10. Uh, we have the queen herself, Maxine Mitchell. And so she I am was awesome. She was awesome. And I am so excited about uh, sharing this, uh, sharing our conversation with Maxine, with all of you. And your next assigned reading, Zana, is mm -hmm. The Intern by Serena Ackroyd. Mm. Uh, the we audio talked about book, this during Pride. Yes, mm. we talked about this one during Pride, uh, but it had not come out in audiobook when okay. uh, when we recorded our Pride episode. So uh, I couldn't do this one yet. Because the audiobook is narrated by Joe Arden and Jacob Morgan, and mm -hmm. it is their first collaboration together. And so I'm very excited to hear what you think about this one. Okay. Um, and when we actually talk about this this book, I'll explain why, uh, why this one is particularly special to me. Mm -hmm. So this is a male-male romance, and uh, it does contain a scene of workplace sexual assault and homophobic slurs that's used by one character in particular mm -hmm. uh and so if those are triggers for you uh this is consider this your trigger warning but if you would like to read along with xana uh, please visit our website cup and saucy books for links and show notes you can also follow us on social media at cup and saucy books we are on facebook instagram and tiktok we are also on twitter as cup n the letter n saucy books if you like what you hear, review and subscribe to the show on your favorite pod platform. Let us know if you have a book you would like us to review on the show. And we hope to meet you in person as well. We're going to be in Anaheim at Steamy LitCon later this month, and I'm so excited about that one. Yeah. Uh, and Indies Invade Philly in October, uh, as well as a couple of others that we'll be going to separately. Uh, so let us know if you will be there too. And thank you for joining us for the Cup and Saucy Book Club. Join us next time when we talk with someone new from the world of books.
and probably go on a few tangents. Happy reading. Cheers. Cheers.